Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. Uh, Sean and AP Andy are currently in Europe doing a survey of various trains. Uh, but I am joined here today by three very special guests. This has been a long time coming. I'm talking, of course, about Tom, Terrence, and Tanya, the three T's of Trillbilly Workers Party. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Hey. Hey, Jamie. Uh, polished off some Trader Joe's cookie butter ice cream. I'm right. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Now you sound quiet again. Well, I'm the levels... The, the, the levels may change throughout this uh, show. Just warning you guys, I think our computers are all a little bit possessed today. But uh, what else could you expect from a goth socialist podcast, really? That's right. So uh, where are my notes here? So I've been wanting to do a show with you guys for a very long time. Um, I really got into your podcast, actually, um, when I was first booked as a guest at the live street fight Trailbillies and District Sentinel show in Atlanta during the DSA convention. And I realized I'd been sleeping on Trailbillies for quite a long time. And a lot of my friends from DSA were already super into it. So I started listening and I just got hooked. That's uh, a pretty, yeah, no, um, I think that's a pretty good sort of trajectory. I think a lot of people have been sleeping on us for a long time, Jamie. So you're not the only one. <laughs> All right. Well, anyone who's listening who still hasn't checked it out, um, what the fuck you're waiting for? So let's see. Let's start with a little bit about y'all, if I may appropriate that term from uh, from Southern culture. Um, I found out from one of your episodes, from your episode with Brendan, actually, that I am allowed to use that word. So thank you. Um, what is the Trillbillies origin story? How did you all meet? And... What were your goals in doing a podcast? We don't have to have like a bullet pointed list of goals, but I'm, I'm sure you've got some in mind. Um, I'm too afraid to talk because of my levels. <laughs> Are you ashamed of your levels? <laughs> we won't level shame you. Don't yeah, worry. You're, this is a level safe space. Um, well, we've all known each other for a long time. I think that uh, a major reason we started doing the show is because a lot of us, or all three of us, uh, worked in the nonprofit world. And I think we were pretty concerned about a lot of the things we were seeing there. <clears throat> and uh, so I think a lot of what we have done has been trying to convince our friends that, um, I guess, a certain kind of progressive activism is the wrong way. And that there's a, another way, a better way of doing it. I don't know. Tanya, you're rolling your eyes. Is that <laughs> accurate or what, what would you say? Um, yeah, I mean, well, I think uh, that's, and that's definitely true that we were all dying in nonprofits and some ways we still are and uh, are desperate for a, a better way. <laughs> and I think a lot of our friends are too, but um I don't know that they're listening to us on Trailbillies. I hope they are. <laughs> I think they are to some extent. Um, I think that's true now more than ever. Before, um, yeah, before. I, I mean, the, for the reason Terrence reads anything, it's a, it's a hate listen. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's true. It's kind of true. 
Well, we're all about the hate listens and the hate reads here at the Antifada, so you are in good company. <laughs> good to hear. So I guess uh, it, this kind of answers my next question, um, which I realize is kind of a big one, but like in short, how did you all become radicalized? Like, was it your experiences working in nonprofits? Was it your experiences growing up in various parts of Appalachia? Like, all of the above? I, I would say kind of, at least for me, I think getting involved in like the prison abolition work we were doing locally was really kind of the thing that pushed me, you know, from, I guess, liberalism into uh, leftism. And really just because, you know, I think at a certain point there was so many like cultural products. I mean, by the time we got going, like Chapo Trap House was out, like all the left publications were, you know, rolling, the Bernie campaign was underway. And so it just kind of, for me anyway, sort of made it easier to have like sort of a culture to step into that made more sense uh, to me in terms of how I looked at the world really like liberalism just didn't really make any sense to me anymore. It's like, yeah, you pay lip service to all these things, but do I really believe in like, you know, like the earned income tax credit is the best we can do and that kind of shit. So that's what I would say for me. And then just, you know, getting it, like I said, getting into the uh, prison abolition piece of it really um, um, brought it home for me. Word. <laughs> Oh, I, so I didn't start. I wasn't calling myself a socialist until I moved here. Um, I think prior to moving here, I was uh, liberal. Um, and then I guess like even during after li- moving here and all those years working in nonprofits, I still even though I sort of maybe called myself something else, I was still pretty liberal in a lot of ways. Um, so I think honestly, like the biggest radicalization for me was moving here. And and the only reason I say that is just because it allowed me to see a lot of similarities between where I grew up in New Mexico and where I live now in Kentucky. And so, um, and so, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I feel like I was definitely calling myself a socialist prior to 2016, but I'm not sure that I really fully understood what it meant. So earlier when I was saying that, like, we've been trying to convince our friends of like, there's another way, I guess the other way is, um, you know, there's a you have to have a class analysis. Um, yeah, I think some combo of uh, reckoning how I grew up and my family's uh, even current reality with um, starting in college. I had a super Marxist professor at my small in-state school, and that's when I first learned about Marxism. And I was having to write papers on political economies. Um, and commodity chains, uh, and working five straight years after that in the Kentucky legislature, uh, broke every part of my body and brain. (laughs) And, uh, I guess I then worked some in the public school systems and around that time is when we were starting to, uh, panic about a prison coming to our town. And I think that, um, similar to what Tom and Terrence said, that's when I started to build my brain back together. Um, uh, Yeah. Word. Um, I think it's really important what you guys are doing, um, especially considering 
the majority of leftist media is coming from these kind of lumpen PMC types on the coasts, right? Like, this is a new word that I made up for these, like, downwardly mobile uh, millennial children of the professional managerial class, of which I am one, right? There's, like, the oat PMC and the lumpen PMC, but it's so important to have voices from different parts of the country, um, especially in terms of putting forth a vision of so-called red states that contradicts the prevailing liberal narratives about them, right? Because when people only understand politics in terms of electoralism, uh, they can do things like call Kentucky a deep red state when, in fact, only 26% of the population voted for Trump in 2016. And it's also the home of a real legacy of radical labor organizing, the Battle of Blair Mountain, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, it, it's kind of a mindfuck for the libs who see these places as, like, deep red states in sort of this essentialist and ahistorical way that ignores the set of material conditions that went into making it this way. So props to you for that. Thanks, yeah. bud. That's, uh, that's, yeah. uh, I've been waiting for that validation for a minute now. That's sweet. <laughs> so, okay, before we go any further um, into our extremely high-level idea discourse, I have to ask, Tanya, how is the pony? What is the pony's name again? Um, I call her Penny. I don't know what her parents, her people actually call her. They're my neighbors, and um, I don't talk to them that much. They live down behind me. Um, They're always fighting, and I try not to get in their business. (laughs) Stay the fuck out of their business. Uh, I guess um, I should give a little background for people who don't know. Um, Tanya has a pony friend that's been coming around her house and cutting the grass. And I think <laughs> regular listeners of Trillbillies are all like very personally invested in how this pony is doing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I mean, I know I am. I had a friend come visit this weekend and stay the weekend with me. And she was like, where's the pony? Where is the pony? And Show me I mean, the pony. We actually haven't seen Penny in a week or two. And I don't know if she's just literally found greener pastures to eat or she forgot how good our Honeycrisp apples are over here or if her people tied her up. I don't know. She's a free agent, so I hate to go looking for her. But I have thought about taking a walk with a carrot and just seeing what happens. Well, I'm sure everyone is waiting with bated breath. For updates on the pony maybe we could call it like pony watch 2019 yeah okay well yeah i'll, I'll watch penny watch if uh, you see something say something but only for <laughs> many ponies <laughs> yeah she is a very sweet girl we love her good 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 to hear um okay so uh, transitioning i will i have I feel like I've gotten kind of good at podcasting, but I will still never figure out how to do smooth transitions from one topic to the, to another. Like speaking of ponies, um, I'm going <laughs> to talk about something else now that has very little to do with ponies. And that is y'all just had an election in the great state of Kentucky and Andy Bashir, who is a Democrat narrowly beat the uh, right wing asshole, Matt Bevan. And we were talking a little bit about it on the majority report this week in conjunction with other elections. Like they flipped a bunch of seats from um, Republican to Democrat in Virginia. Um, And they're trying to extract any kind of lessons in terms of 2020. Right. Because I think 
at least in Majority Report, we're very focused on trying to figure out how Bernie Sanders and his style of the kind of class struggle, social democracy or whatever will fare in 2020. Um, do you think that there does, does this election tell us anything about that or can it not be abstracted in that way? I, I don't think so personally. I mean, I haven't got a chance to talk to Tanya about this yet, um, but me and Tom have talked about it, but personally, I don't think there's any real political lessons that can be drawn from it. I think that, I think that Bevin was just very uniquely bad. Um, and I mean, like I saw some people saying that Bashir is, is not a conservative Democrat, that he's actually progressive, but I, I've not seen any evidence of that really. Like, He's talked about lifting the Medicare or Medicaid waiver that Bevin put in place, but I haven't seen him talk about restoring the full Medicaid Connect program that Bevin did away with, just as an example. So, I mean, I just I kind of think that he's just kind of like a centrist or left of center Democrat, but I've not seen any. I mean, so I guess, okay. so I guess if if that's true, then I guess maybe the lesson would be that maybe Biden could win a state like Kentucky. But I don't I mean, I'm just saying that if you're looking for political lessons from this, that might be one of them. I hope that's not true. But to me, to me, this race most closely mirrors that Roy Moore and Doug Jones race in Alabama, the Senate race, I think that happened last year. I don't think uh, I don't think it's a good one to one analog for what might happen in the in the presidential race next year, just because Trump is still deeply popular here in the way that Matt Bevin wasn't. Um, if somebody like Bernie were to come here and, you know, draw on the legacy of the new deal era and, you know, form a coalition that includes young people and some of this older generation that have a, a deeper tie to the FDR style politics, I think it's possible that, uh, that he could win. I mean, I mean, Bill Clinton won Kentucky twice. I mean, it's not exactly like it's, you know, as deep red as it's made out to be. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it would take something proprietary that, um, you know, Trump's what Trump is, is offering. Yeah, I mean, I mostly agree with that. Um, you know, most of Kentucky's governors have been Democrats. And before Bevin, we had eight years of a brochure of Andy's dad. Um, and so I think it makes sense that um, in states like Kentucky, there are legacy politicians that get to just pass down power. Um, and that um, does very little to push against the structures that support the Matt Bevins of the world and the Trumps um, moving power from one, one uh, family member to the next. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, he, he came for teachers. I think maybe we could say that um, in the past four, three years, there has been a lot of labor organizing led by teachers. Um, I think that's pretty cool, and that's happening all over the country. So I don't know how deep into the weeds of Kentucky politics you want to get, but I we saw some... drag in here. <laughs> yeah. I saw some people saying, so... Bevin didn't have a very large margin of victory in northern Kentucky, like in the Cincinnati suburbs. So in northern Kentucky is just over the river from Cincinnati, and that's like the Covington area. And it's a really conservative area. And traditionally, like Bevin and the Republicans have carried it. But they didn't 
they didn't have a very mar- large margin of victory in that area. And, um, and a lot of people are saying that, uh, that's cause this is a very narrow race. Bashir only beat Bevin by about 5,000 votes. So a lot of people are saying that Northern Kentucky is kind of the area that, that won it for, for Bashir. And the reason why is because Bevin wanted to put a toll on the Brent Spinch. I think it's called the Brent Spencer bridge that goes across Covington to Cincinnati. And there's a lot of, you know, middle-class people who live in the suburbs who commute back and forth across that bridge. So, I mean, if that's the case, then it is quite literally an example of just the middle class looking out for their own interests. And I mean, nothing trumps the culture war like an unpopular toll or tax. And so totally. I could easily I could easily see that just being it coming down to that. Uh, also, uh, as a guy that has a lot of friends from Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, they're the tightest people on the planet. You know, the people that if uh, if you bought them a drink, they'd come up to you a month later. And be like, hey, man, you got that three bucks that I. You know, that I gave you for that drink that time. You know, Bevin totally fucked up here because he was even talking shit to those people. Like, the guy just talked mad shit to everybody and could not shut the fuck up. So he was even talking shit to the people who, like, the Tea Party, don't tax me, don't step on, you know, like, don't tread on me type people. Because he he announced this tax and this toll back in earlier this year, and people got really pissed about it. And he was like, yeah, well, those people are going to complain because that's all they do. It's just like, dude, that's your base. You can't be fucking talking shit about your base. <laughs> but well, only, only Trump can uh, do that whole Dom thing and it works still. You know? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. He's their daddy. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, if anything, maybe it shows that when push comes to shove, people will vote their material interests over culture wars bullshit. Should there be material interests at play? Um. Yeah, I think, yeah. I, yeah, 100%. I, I also heard, and you guys predicted that the people in the mountains of eastern Kentucky were going to play a deciding role in this election. Um, did that turn out to be true? Kind of, yeah. I think, um, well, I think that had more to do with having the right surrogates in place, in particular this guy Rocky Atkins, who finished second in the in the gubernatorial primary was a pretty strong Andy Bashir surrogate in a place that is historically super strong democratically. Elliott County, the county he's from, is the the strongest democratic county in the country of any state. And uh, I think that influence um, swung a lot of votes. I don't necessarily think it's like indicative of some, you know, rebellion, you know, percolating in the mountains, but, uh, you know. Mm. Oh, speaking of the mountains, um, I wanted to ask you, like, in terms of the Appalachian... Oh, I just totally butchered your pronunciation. I'm sorry. But in terms of the uh, Appalachian region, it sounds... It, however I say it sounds wrong. I'm sorry. I'm from Connecticut. Um, like, what? what's your over-under on the chances of a protracted people's war succeeding in the mountains of Appalachia? <laughs> <laughs> Given you laid this out as an over-under, I think this is a Tom question. <laughs> He's our gambling man. It's hard to say. I mean, like... Are we talking likelihood or success? Or, like... Mm, maybe both. Maybe we can treat these as separate issues. Like, what's the likelihood of it starting there? Uh, and once it starts, what's the likelihood of victory? Well, it's absolutely the best terrain for it. And now the question of whether there's enough political will is the other thing. But, uh, 
Yeah, you could definitely uh, throw a billionaire in a well and nobody would find them for like nine months at least. (laughs) Yeah, and plus, Appalachia, you know, like when they were making... So Appalachia would be like um, a perfect place to sort of hold up commerce as commerce moves out from the eastern seaboard into the heartland, as they say. It would be, uh, you know, you get a few hundred tanks and people's militias holding up major interstates and creating like bottlenecks of commerce. You can slow, you can slow some shit down. Um, so I think success, you've got some, you've got a pretty good likelihood of success, or at least, at least it will be protracted for quite a long time. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's very encouraging. <laughs> so. To, to swing it back in a more boring direction, um, I know you've spoken a bit about how much everyone hates Mitch McConnell in your region, and yet he has managed to cling on to power. Um, but we've seen a few moments of upset for him lately. Um, for instance, all the Kentuckians who chanted Moscow Mitch at him during a recent uh, stump speech campaign appearance. I, I don't know if he was campaigning for Bevan or what. But um, that, that moment struck me as kind of bittersweet because on the one hand, I'm glad to see people in Kentucky are turning on this school. On the other hand, like Moscow Mitch is like obviously kind of a, a cry of the resistance like and centrist liberals in general. So what, what do you make of these kinds of actions, these kinds of people who are doing this? Like, are, are they people the left might be able to form some sort of coalition with, or are they just like irredeemable libs who we shouldn't pay attention to? <laughs> That's a $64,000 question, I think. I, personally, I, I think they're irredeemable libs. I think that the people who orchestrated that are people who work for like that group Indivisible. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. People who are like, um, their jobs is to be like political organizers, but like by that they just like bird dog Republican Congress people wherever they go. You know what I mean? So I, like I don't, I, I think I tend to think that they're irredeemable libs, but maybe not. Maybe there were some leftists in there chanting Moscow Mitch. I really hope not. <laughs> I, I think it's just an, another sad tactic of the Kentucky Democratic Party, which has a long history of just invoking the deepest secondhand embarrassment. Um, they're so hard to watch. They have terrible strategy. Yeah. <laughs> they give a lot of bad advice. Yeah. And then the worst part is now with the Sandy Bashir thing, you won't be able to tell them nothing for fucking 20 years. Yeah. No, total peacocks now because the gubernatorial <laughs> race in Kentucky did the exact same thing it's done for 100 fucking years. They just teeter back. <laughs> yeah, they lost every other goddamn down ballot race and then narrowly won the governorship. And now they think that they're the, you know, playing ninth dimensional chess and all of us are wrong. Yeah, taking so much pride in so narrowly beating the most uh, hated governor person, maybe, in the state is its just truly demented. It's sad. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think I'm kind of of two minds on this. Maybe I've just been working for Sam too long at what is basically a liberal show, although they do get some Marxists in the mix, obviously, including myself. But like, on the one hand, 
I could see how a Democrat would be marginally better than a Republican winning, like at least in terms of cuts to Medicaid and the ACA and all that. Like there are people who would have had their health care taken away who now will be able to get health care. And that's good. On the other hand, like every time an establishment Democrat wins, like it strengthens that wing of the party and it strengthens their arguments that they are effective politicians and like i i just feel like that could also be bad yeah or go ahead tanya i'll say yeah there's no doubt that uh andy brashear is better than matt bevan for sure i mean we're probably going to get to open two new abortion clinics um of course he hasn't said that but Matt bevan had been holding up a completely um state-of-the-art new planned parenthood clinic that uh bevan wouldn't give a permit to and I imagine that facility will be in use again or for the first time ever. <laughs> um, and that's pretty incredible. Um, I'm, you know, waiting to see what Medicare is like. I'm trying to get in on our open enrollment right now. Uh, oh, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, thank you. So um, hopefully, yeah, but I just, um, I don't give much of that credit to the Kentucky DMs or uh, think that, Andy Brashear is going to push against any structures uh, that need to be moved in this state or anywhere. I, it's entirely possible that, I mean, because we don't know how this is going to play out. There's still, Bevan has demanded a recount, which is going to happen next Wednesday, or I don't know when this is coming out, but it'll be, it'll happen on. I thought they couldn't recount. They could just like re-canvas or something. I'm sorry. They're going to do a re-canvas, um, which very rarely turns up any different results. But what does that mean? What's that? What does that mean? What's a what's a recanvas? What is a recanvas, Tanya? Is it like they I'm pretty sure it's just like a check of all the polling places or all the precincts or whatever. Like it's not a recount of the votes, it's like a re-sweep of where voting happened or something. Well, the yeah. um the Kentucky general are you, were you gonna say something, Tom? I think I was gonna say what you're getting ready to say, go for it. <laughs> Well, it's good. The Kentucky General Assembly is still packed to the fucking brim with reactionaries, like just the most insane people imaginable. Um, so Bevin still has two more months as governor. Like, we we, we don't know what's going to happen. Like, the fucking Bevin and the General Assembly may make the entire governor's office, <laughs> like, just completely incapable of doing anything. Like, they may throw as many wrenches into – because here's the thing. Not only that, they've also got Republicans also have the Kentucky Attorney General now. Um, so they have the Attorney General's office. They have the entire General Assembly. Um, they're going to try to throw as many wrenches into the into Bashir's path as they can. And um, so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, and ba- Bashir is technically still the Attorney General until he takes the governor's office, right? Right. They all turn over in January. Yeah. It's gonna be a shit show. You can you can hang your hat on that for sure. Yeah. And we I don't think anyone expected him to concede at any point. He won't concede the election. You know, a court will just have to say, okay, we've declared this election over, and he'll wimp away. I I, I don't expect him to concede at any point. Yeah, because that would um that'd make Daddy Trump look bad. That's what that's what this all is all about. I mean, because he's embarrassed that he made Daddy look bad. Who, you know, he came to Kentucky the night before the election and gave that like rally, like, listen, folks, 
if I lose, if Bevan loses, it's going to make me look so bad. I think that was his exact quote. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to look really bad. He said, it's going to look really bad. Don't do that to me, he said. Yeah, you can't let that happen to me. Yeah, don't let that happen to me. Wow. Well, I mean, do you yeah. think that's true? Do you think that uh, Trump is in any way, especially considering the impeachment proceedings going on against him right now, do you think that the issues with Trump are being nationalized or vice versa? I mean, I saw one example of uh, a Republican who was actually trying to tie his Democratic opponent to Trump, um, and it didn't work. But like, (laughs) there is the sense in some places that um, maybe Trump's approval rating, which has fallen a little bit, even among Republicans, which I find very surprising, um, is somehow hurting Republicans all over the country. I don't know. I'm, I, I, I still maintain that the worst possible outcome would be Biden winning. And so because we live in hell and the worst possible outcome is the one that's going to happen, I think it's entirely possible that Trump will lose. <laughs> and we're going to get four more fucking years of warmed over centrist bullshit. And uh, God, I so I don't that. know. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it is it is crazy. I think a few things that were strung together is the day after the election. You brought up Mitch McConnell. He um, he made an official complaint against one of his potential someone who hasn't even filed to run in the primary against him. And so that just seemed like such a bizarre move to me. And maybe Tom would have better insights about it. But it just seems like a very bizarre series of events. Um, from the most powerful political party in the world (laughs) or whatever. I don't know. It's just like, it's really strange. Well, maybe that's an indication that he's scared. I mean, it seems like everybody hates him. So that's something. Um, Well, yeah, if you're getting booed at UFC matches and stuff, like, I don't know. I really don't know. it's It's hard to say anything for sure. I think I've given up on being able to predict the American electorate behaving in any kind of way that makes sense. And I'm not talking about, oh, they're voting against their own interests, blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about like how many levels it is removed from the material base and like the Marxist understanding that we all have about how uh, the working class and the boss class are going to defend their respective interests i think partly because we don't have a labor party in this country so like any of the polls that someone might cite like oh trump's approval rating among non-college educated whites is much higher than it is among college educated whites which is like a very rough approximation right of who's working class and who's not um like there's no there's nothing to compare it to because it's not like the Democrats are advocating for the working class yeah, for the most right. part. I mean, obviously, there are some exceptions. I saw this thing or I heard this. Um, so the New York Times, uh, Mikey Barb's Mikey Bar- Barbaro, the guy who, you know, made the infamous tweet about um, homeless people in the subway. Um, oh, God, I think that- I missed that one. Me too. Oh, really? Yeah, he like tweeted at the New York City Transit or whatever. It's like, this is inexcusable. You have people sleeping down here. Yeah, it is inexcusable, <laughs> um, but probably not for the reasons that he thinks. <laughs> right, right, right. Wow. 
Well, he's got a he's got a New York a podcast on the New York Times called the the Daily. Is he and, is he um, a lib? What's his deal? He's a lib for sure. <laughs> he's a lib like. And he has his podcast where he tries to do like the this American life thing, like with politics, basically. He's one of your favorite hate listens. Terry. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, well, and so they they covered the Kentucky thing, and so I was listening to it the other day, and I was driving, and I had a little bit of time, and so then I listened to the, the another episode where they were talking about how the Times called twenty sixteen really badly, and they're aware of this, and so they're trying to figure out how to get better polling for 2020. And that's where I think maybe this is why you and Sam were talking about this on the majority report is because the times had this thing about how Trump's approval rating with non-educated whites is still about the same. But on this episode, the people that they were talking to, like non-educated whites, non-college educated whites, I should specify, they are all really old. And so like, I don't understand, I don't know if there's like an age thing here, but I could like easily see like all those pollings coming from people who like were born in 1930 and they didn't go to college because like nobody fucking went to college, but they're still like non-educated white people who just love fucking Trump. So like, (laughs) it also doesn't tell you that much about someone's class position and like everyone laughed at me when I said these pollsters need to familiarize themselves with basic Marxist concepts. But like, yeah. I have to believe uh, a millennial who went to college but is making thirty thousand dollars a year is going to be more uh, progressive, even socialist in their orientation, than someone who didn't go to college but came up in the old economy that convinced them anyone who works hard can make a decent living. You know. Yeah. Oh. So Sam also floated an idea, and I think we're all like trying to be a little optimistic about what's happening with Bernie right now, self-included. I'm I mean, I am an electoral skeptic, but I'm trying to convince myself that this is even possible because like, what the fuck else are we supposed to do in the short term? Um, Yeah, I think we're on the same page. there, Sam has a theory um, based on. Some some Democratic wins across the political spectrum as part of this quote unquote blue wave that um, this the blue wave, so to speak, is more partisan than ideological right now. And we've seen um, I was talking about Virginia earlier. We've seen wins all the way from like more centrist style candidates to Lee Carter, who is a full on socialist, basically. So the theory there is that uh, Democrats can win using basically any kind of politics right now. And that creates an opening for the more leftist ones to come in and win. Like, what do you think about that? It's possible. I mean, I guess I couldn't rule it out, but it goes back to what you were saying earlier. The reason I I guess, I guess the reason I'm skeptical of let's call it electoralism is because the working class currently doesn't have any power in that realm. As you're saying earlier, there's no labor party. So everything is just kind of just, cobbled together and you just have a large broad electorate so it's hard to like separate out the working class from that because we know they're not represented and so um i I guess it depends on if they feel like voting will actually improve their lot and so um i don't i don't know i i mean i guess i agree with them that in the sense that like uh People are shying away from the word socialist. I mean, or I'm sorry, you know what I mean? People are warming up to the word socialist. Like they, they're not as, there's not as much anti-communism in, in the culture as there used to be. 
I don't know. You, you guys probably have a lot more to say. It's about even that. further removed from that, right? Because organized labor, while the Democratic Party was never a labor party, um, organized labor used to be a strong constituency and a right. powerful part of that coalition. But starting and and you know to some degree the Democrats had to not just pander but like throw them a bone once in a while. But with the historic defeat of organized labor in the neoliberal turn of the seventies. They they stopped having as much power and then it became like a which came first, the chicken or the egg scenario, where as their power decreased, the Democrats retreated from them and that further alienated portions of the working class. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I mean, he he could be right. Um, It does feel like. It does feel like the Trump coalition is kind of. um fragile or it feels like maybe uh it's not as solid as we think it is and so it could start unraveling in the coming years which is a huge gift to anyone further to the left of chuck chuck schumer and so um and so yeah i mean from that perspective it's it's a optimist or it's a it's a it would be a source for optimism for sure um but then at the same time the democrats also firmly believe in neoliberalism um, they firmly believe in a managerial style of governing that 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 does have at its base something that is antagonism antagonistic to working class ownership of governance and the means of production. And so that's the dangerous part. It's like, yeah, you open up the door and maybe you let in a bunch of socialists, but you're also obviously letting in all these, you know, sort of believers in neoliberalism and there are enemies just as much as the right wingers are in many ways. So it's, I don't know, I guess it just takes a lot of political education on our part, which is why we have podcasts, I guess. (laughs) Totally. I have this theory that, and I didn't really think much of it until the last couple of days, but if it's true that Trump isn't picking up any new voters. Yeah. Let's talk about that then we could just, like, I think Sam's theory actually holds up more because then all we have to do to win is go to fucking Wisconsin. You know what I mean? I mean, when I say we, I mean, like, the Bernie coalition, theoretically, or really whoever wins the Democratic nomination. Like, I think, who I think, and, I, and again, this is like a flip-flop on this all the time, but today, where I'm sitting right now, I think whoever wins the Democratic nomination is going to beat Trump by virtue of that. But I also think that um, barring any sort of new chicanery from the Democrats, I think Bernie's going to just pile up skins in the primaries and it's just going to be an undeniable kind of victory. I mean, that could be highly optimistic and a bit naive, but I just think he's got the juice like that right now. Yeah. So why why do we think that Trump isn't picking up any new voters? Because I got in an argument with Sam and I couldn't prove it. I can't. I still. I still don't think I can prove it. I just have a feeling about it that people who did not bother to come out and vote for Trump in 2016 aren't going to do it now. But then we did see an increased turnout on both sides in this most recent election. But but still, like, I just have to imagine and and you know there's polls saying like even um non-voters among non-voters um non-college educated whites favor trump um 
I think the, the figure, oh, I have it written down here. It was 59% of non-college educated whites approve of Trump right now versus 38% of college educated ones. And uh, Sam wanted some proof that people who don't normally vote, if they came out right now, um, he wanted some proof that they would vote for a progressive Bernie style candidate. And I didn't really have one. But like, all I have is like, the, the experiences that I've had talking to people with firsthand knowledge of these kinds of things in these kinds of places. And I, I like it that you guys don't center the people who vote too in your political analysis. Cause I think that's like kind of a bankrupt road to go down. I just feel like the, the reasons why people don't vote also, these polls could be garbage. Uh, let's just say polls aren't everything. Um, I mean the people who don't vote, what are their reasons for not voting? They're disenfranchised. They don't think it's going to do shit. And like, that's just a fact that both Democrats and Republicans have been exploiting for years now. Yeah, I mean, there's also just dumb shit. Like, <laughs> like people in Eastern Kentucky don't want to get called for jury duty, so they don't go vote. You know, what I mean? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, there's really there's like a, all kinds of reasons why people don't. Uh, and in particular, if if you like you were saying, Jamie, like if 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 your life is precarious and uh, you've not seen any evidence that uh, voting or whatever your participation in the system is going to render your life any less precarious, then yeah, like why even show up? Yeah, and there is like a strong class character to this data as well. Like the biggest predictor of whether or not someone is going to vote is their socioeconomic class and their level of income. But then again, you have yeah. layered on top of it all of the culture war bullshit, which tends to come to the forefront more when material issues like health care and education and whatnot are not at play as they have mm -hmm. not been in a major way in a long time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like, I've got this quote from um, a friend of mine, shout out to Samson, who grew up in, both inside and outside of Kansas City, Missouri. And he told me, uh, liberals will never win back rural communities because they have nothing to offer that would counteract the conservative know your place doctrine. Uh, most people don't even believe in it, but they just remain silent while the ones who do get to represent them. And he used the example of um, his high school where the rebel flag was actually in their school flag, even though his school was predominantly black. Like, what the fuck? Um, and he said a liberal voice will do literally nothing for these people except embarrass them among their peers. But a Marxist voice, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's so hard. It's so hard to prognosticate about this stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, and I think the other thing too, and, and, Shout out to Samson for, for pointing that out. But I also too think that like every rural place is so different. Like it's not like, you know, rural America is not as monolithic as we tend to think it is. You know, I think Eastern Kentucky is different from Kansas is different from Alabama is different from wherever. And um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, here, you know, we live in the, like, one of the poorest and the unhealthiest con congressional district in the country. And um, something that I can, that I do think moves people to go out, would move people to go out and vote for Bernie that would normally not vote is um, to for themselves and people around them to have 
health care if they are sick and people they are close to are sick. I do, I do know people like that who are normally they're less like, what the fuck does it matter to me who's in office? Um, but um, people around them are straight up dying um, for things that could have been treated years ago, right? Had they had access to health care. Yeah, totally. But then Democrats come back with stuff like, oh, well, what about the Affordable Care Act? It's it's totally going to expand access to health care. Like, I have to believe none of these people have ever tried to actually buy health care on the exchanges because yeah. it it's fucking impossible. Like there was a time when I I mean, before I married into the labor aristocracy, um, when I had to buy it on the marketplace. And literally the only reason I could afford it was because my parents were paying for it. And like, that's an embarrassing thing to tell everyone about myself. But I also think it's very indicative. Like if I didn't have parents who could pay for it, I just wouldn't have had fucking health care. And most people don't have parents who could pay for it. I'm trying to sign up for it right now. And it's like the cheapest options are like $260 a month premiums and like $7,000 deductibles. It's like, who the fuck buys this shit like that's really the big question to me it's like and i guess maybe that's because in kentucky it's our exchange has just been completely dismantled by bevin but i mean it's it's incredible no i mean it's i live in new york and it's the same way like i don't know who in my income bracket could afford to buy a decent plan on the exchanges just using their own money right considering the cost of living here Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's like also there's just like like I was thinking about this just a second ago when we were talking about like why people don't vote. Like I have no fucking clue how to buy a house. You know what I'm saying? I just know how to like thumb through Craigslist and say, oh, this neighborhood looks cool. Let me call and see if this place will rent to me. You know what I mean? Like for a lot of people, it's the same thing with voting or buying health insurance or anything. It's so daunting, particularly if you've never been in a position to do that. Or again, if you come from some sort of precarity where, you know, that's just foreign to you on how to like do these things that a lot of people take for granted how to do. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Who, who the fuck buys that shit? I, I guess you just do it so they don't like charge you that like penalty during tax time or whatever. And you just buy the cheapest plan that it's like, you know, you got to spend $8,000 before it even fucking works anyway. I've paid the penalty before. The penalty is cheaper than health insurance. So, <laughs> oh yeah, and there's even like a loophole. Like if you can plead poverty and show that you actually can't afford it, they'll let you off from the penalty, which is like so nice of them, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I think, and I can't remember if I read this somewhere or what, but I'm pretty sure Trump did away with the penalty. See, Maybe? like people like that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> like, people don't like being forced to buy health care that they can't fucking afford. I know. So, like, it's the million with a little ways that the Democrats are pissing away people that would vote for them by just, like, being totally clueless about how people navigate the world. Yeah, like, I get it. So I guess, I guess we've been talking about this all along, but um, what has informed your electoral skepticism through the years? Because... I feel like that's often kind of a hot take position that um, I am then forced to defend. Like, I'm not necessarily saying that nothing can be accomplished that way. But also, like, I've, I, I, wish, I wish I was wrong. I don't think I am. But I've just seen it fail time and again through history. Like, what, 
what uh what practical experiences have informed this uh the skepticism for you guys <clears throat> me personally i think this was created mostly during the obama years you know a lot has changed since then so obviously i've tried to keep, try to update my own sort of outlook on it um but i think this mostly comes from where we live and the fact that our congressmen like in mo- in some parts of the country it's just a non-starter trying to get your congressman out of office. If you tried to get our congressman out of office, he would probably get you fired and ruin your life because he rules. Oh, he's the longest serving Republican in Congress and he rules over his congressional district like a personal fiefdom. And so in a lot of parts of the country, and that's true in a lot of parts of the country, whether that person's a Democrat or Republican, it's not to say it can't be done because AOC did it, you know, so it can, it can be done. Um, it's just that, I don't know. Starting from that position to me is like uh, several steps down the road, maybe, or I don't know. I don't quite, maybe I don't have a way to articulate it as well, but I guess the point is, is like for a lot of people, it is already just a non-starter. And, um, and so it's hard to get people inspired about something like from an organizing perspective, it's hard to get people inspired about something that just hasn't worked for them in the past. Cause that's how people sort of come to conclusions. They see what's worked. They use the evidence to like create a sort of summary or narrative about it. And, and so, yeah, from an organizing perspective, it's probably a lot easier to get people to hate their bosses and maybe, I don't know, oh. form a union or oh, something. People do I, I hate really their bosses. Know. Yeah. That's definitely true already. But like, right. I feel like a lot of people don't think there's anything they can do about it. Very true. Like for for me, I think it was just the letdown of Barack Obama, because I remember how you know <laughs> how energized and full of hope, and you know, in I retrospect, one of those questions like "Who hurt you?" <laughs> Show me on the doll where the politicians hurt you. Hurt you. <laughs> Which I mean, I don't know how how gung ho y'all were for Obama, but that, that felt like such a watershed moment and if you compare what he ran as versus what he became what became clear to me is that you know all of these people whether they're barack obama or john mccain or whoever serve the same master and like the president that came before them like i feel like the bush years really just showed the obama people what was possible if they could just put a nicer face to it you know what i mean they could continue uh the drone programs they could you know do whatever else that Obama was doing under the cover of his charisma and, and sort of popularity that they can actually in some ways be more effective in continuing to serve capital, to serve empire and all that kind of stuff. And and I think that was really for me, the thing. And then I guess later on realizing for example, like when Bill Clinton gutted welfare and we moved from, entitlements to block grants and how like what a like a damning lasting impact that had on communities like mine where you know if if a if a social security attorney goes to the pen it wipes out 50 percent of the economy <laughs> that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah i mean i guess i would say it's a series of uh putting hope in failed candidacies uh both, I mean, people who get elected and then just fuck us over the same. Um, me, me and Tanya used to go lobby in <laughs> Frankfurt. 
like at the state legislature and just like how surreal that is, like begging with somebody to like not fuck you over. But also the contempt they have for you, too. Absolutely. They hated us. And and when I say when, when Terrence says that we went and lobbied and when I say <laughs> that I spent five years having to work with the state legislature, let me paint a little picture here. We live at least four, if, four to five hours from our state capitol. And so to to join a lobby day, I would literally drive 15 passenger vans full of people over Pine Mountain through Harlan County the long way to pick people up along the way. We would leave at 5 a.m. to get there at 10 a.m., like a read some kind of reasonable hour. Um, and then we would be treated like scum for four hours as we walked around our state capitol. This like incredible, this building built of marble, just sick. Truly Jefferson sick. Davis in the middle. <laughs> yeah, just a truly sick environment on all accounts. And then drive five, four to five hours home with all these people and have literally no, nothing to say to them about why they just wasted their day like this and be expected to convince them to go next week. It was like a true, I mean, this broke my brain. I'm, this isn't a joke. <laughs> this is very sad. And it was a very sad reality. Um, and I, I think on top of that, similar to just like how bizarre our state capitals are and these state buildings. I just feel like the money, the money that is sunk into these campaigns is sick when you live in a really, in really poor communities. It's just, it is uh, so it's just bizarre and fucked up. And that's on both, you know, both fucked up sides, whatever, just the money sunk into this shit is it's sick. We can't compete with it. Yeah, there's no, there's no way. It just makes electoralism feel like a, it's a joke. This like joke, and we are the ass of that joke. Yeah, yeah. And I will say that I feel like, I feel like I have, I feel like the whole Bernie thing is an exception in many ways. Um, and I've, it's taken me a few years to like not be so skeptical of that. Um, but that's, I mean, I think any person who spent those years doing that, that kind of work you know, uh, busing people, organizing people to go, you know, talk to their representatives, get out the vote, registering people to vote, all these things that plug into the um, electoral system. The thing is, is that electoral politics is an industry at this point. It's a very well-funded industry. And so it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's, I mean, I think that we would be crazy not to be skeptical of it. Um, But you know, I guess that is a separate question than from what Bernie is doing. And so we took a lot of shit from that. You know, people are like, you guys are ultra left and all this. It's just like, I mean, if you spent the years 2010 through 2016 doing what we were doing, like, I don't know. You'd be crazy not to have at least some misgivings. Oh, was about it. So you guys come by your skepticism, honestly, is what you're saying. It's been beaten to us. Beat out. I hope it's been beat out of us. Yeah. No, but I mean, I, I still have very close friends and comrades who work in campaigns and, uh, you know, I respect what they are trying to do. Like, I'm not. I, I think there's reason to tap into all tools in our toolbox as, you know, at the at the fear of sound and hokey. There are a lot of things I do that I think in the long term. Uh, maybe futile, but still, um, I mean, at a lot of times we're just like flipping over rocks, trying to find crawdads here at this point. You know what I mean? <laughs> we, the, the, the path is not, 
exactly illuminated for us right now. Yeah. I mean, the question then does become um, what we are supposed to do instead, right? Because even right. even on the nominally socialist left, I've seen a real emphasis, a real centering of electoral work on the one hand and a real kind of uh, disdain. I don't, I don't know what I want to call it. I have to be careful um, what I say about my comrades <laughs> in public, but like when people in say the left pole of DSA start talking about other kinds of organizing, um, the idea that we might be able to build towards a general strike, or even the idea that we need to take the idea of social revolution seriously, um, we get kind of laughed at and dismissed as these impractical ultra left wreckers when I think it it's so important. Like it's the only way forward in the long term. Like we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can work on these electoral campaigns. But I think at best, if uh, social democracy were to win at the ballot box, um, it's maybe going to buy us some time at best before these crises intensify because that's just the nature of capitalism and, and i view it as an inconvenient truth um like i don't i would rather not have to do a revolution it sounds fucking terrifying and it and hard and it's very far away from happening and i'm probably gonna die when it happens that sucks but like i really think there's no way around it like how how do we even begin to organize towards that in such a politically hostile environment Matt, that is the real $64,000 question. You know, part of me even thinks that it's not even in the cards for a place like here. Like it could happen in, you know, and I think this is something we talked about with Josh Clover when he came on our show is that maybe it's in the cards for, you know, these major agricultural areas, Brazil, perhaps. Uh, I mean, you see stuff going on in Chile right now with that uprising in different places. And, and maybe it's like, uh, you know, I don't know how we fit into that as a country that's, you know, more or less fat and happy. You know, I, I don't know. What you're saying is it has to start somewhere else and they have to smash America. <laughs> Third worldist, Tom. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as a great Marxist philosopher once said, it has to start somewhere. It has to start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Yeah. Shout out to Zach De La Roca. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've got the terrain for it. We've already established that. Yes, definitely. We also have um, a huge concentration of prisoned people, of cages here. And so uh, releasing tons of comrades who have been locked up for decades, I think, would be a good strategy, too. <laughs> totally. And, like, that's the other problem with this focus on electoralism and, quote, unquote, likely voters. Like so many of the people who are most oppressed by capitalism either don't vote or can't vote because they're in prison yeah. or because they're undocumented. And like if we center voters in our organizing, we're missing out on a huge swath of the working class. Well, here's here's the thing. I think this is another I don't know why this really didn't occur to me earlier, but I think the prison thing is probably the biggest reason why I'm so skeptical of it is because like once you see it in its totality and I mean, like really see it come up to the foot of it and see how the bureaucrats uh, run the prison system, see how the local people from communities are uh, 
basically drafted into this system of becoming prison guards because they don't have any other economic choices to basically police poor white people and black and brown people. It's like once you see this like just turning grist mill, it's like the gap between that and this electoral sort of solution. It just feels almost it's so insufficient. It's so comical in many ways. It's just absurd. And so like me personally, I, I guess maybe I am kind of closer to Josh Clover on this than I would like to admit, but the, the, um, the truth is that people throughout history, they will um, engage in revolt in, in some, in, in insurrection. Like we had, I feel like we had weekly insurrections in this country from like 2014 to 2016. Um, Like that's what Ferguson was. It was an insurrection. And so that's the question to me. Like, I always get confused when leftists ask this question, like, oh, what else are we supposed to be doing? Like, if not Bernie, then what else are we supposed to be doing? It's like, <laughs> well, well, it's just like, yeah, like, well, communities will rise up. They always do. They always have anytime they have a boot to the neck. How are leftists going to influence that and steer it towards a social revolutionary direction? And so I don't know. I, I, I don't know. The question is always very bizarre to me. It's just like, oh, a lot of us have been doing shit before Bernie. I that does not mean that I'm not that does not mean that I'm pessimistic about it or don't want to plug into it. It's just that, like, I guess for me, I'm a little more interested in seeing how we can influence populations and communities that were are going to be like, fuck this. Let's revolt because that's that's what happens in in capitalist societies. And it's what happens in America. Like, I, I don't know. It's like on one hand, we talk about how complacent Americans are, but on the other hand, it's like we, were, we burned down CVSs and shit. Like, it happens. We The media doesn't want to cover it, and left might get a little icky about it, because we also don't want to fucking, I guess, throw Molotov cocktails, but it does happen, and so it's like, we need to understand what our relationship to political violence is, and really understand, like, how we, I don't know, <laughs> how we feel about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing some glimmers of that in the protests that have been going on in New York recently over the increased police presence in the subways. Like they're raising the fare, they're cutting services at the same time that people have less and less access to housing and healthcare and decent education. And then at the same time, they're going to try to, they're going to spend a ton of money installing cameras in the subway and putting cops down there as a way of policing and criminalizing the poor, which is a very racialized category in this city as well. Um, and just going after black and brown youth like they're hunting them over 275. Like, fuck off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I see like a oh, broad yeah. coalition forming, hopefully, of people who are just not fucking OK with that. Yeah. 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 And I mean, just to go back to the teacher strikes, I think there's a lot of power and um, and leverage to be and solidarity to be built there. Shutting down a school system is shutting down a whole state's school system. Shutting down even a local school system has so many ripple impacts. It certainly impacts commerce, certainly shuts down commerce. It, It 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 it. exposes a huge child care deficit in this country. It just like exposes a lot of uh, problems with infrastructure. Like we have so little infrastructure so, to support people. <laughs> and when you shut down a school, a public school system, um, h- however large or small, a lot of those cracks and just complete neglect in our s- systems are, are really more exposed. 
And so I think there's a lot of strategy, a lot to be learned from from women who are leading teacher strikes and um, a lot to be gained from um, building out from those campaigns. Totally. I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to social reproduction and that's why we're seeing so much action in that area right now because the U.S. economy is less and less focused on productive labor producing things and more focused on producing people, right? Because we still need people. We still need workers to keep the system going. And education is one of those things. Transportation is one of those things. Like all of the things that people do outside of work in order to stay alive and reproduce themselves as a class, um, more and more of the responsibilities for that have been shifted onto the individual. And that's what neoliberalism is. That's what it does. Um, But like, I think it exposes one of the main contradictions of capitalism because you can only do that so much. You can only squeeze people so far until they have no choice but to fight back because they literally need to stay alive. I I think that a lot of leftists, myself included, I mean, I understand where this comes from. We live in a society that is centered around like commodity production and being productive in the workforce. So I think we see activism as something like, oh, if I'm not out there knocking on doors and if I'm not out there like trying to help a candidate win, then it's like not doing leftism. And I just I I want to say that like that's good and we need that and people doing that should keep doing it. But I also just want to say that there are other forms of resistance or whatever you call it, not capital R resistance but like there actual are resistance yes <laughs> hashtag actual resistance not, yeah not hashtag resistance right and i mean if you think that like what happened in west virginia was solely just because of like bernie sanders then you're out of your fucking mind it's because like there are socialist cadre there working on that and there are other ways to to i don't know push people towards this sort of revolutionary consciousness and uh, so, yeah, that's the thing. It's a skepticism, but I, I don't think at any point in our podcast we've told people, like, don't vote, don't canvas for people. Because, I mean, like, I do believe in this. I voted for Andy Bashir. I mean, you know, so I voted for a total Fucking milk toast liberal. <laughs> You're canceled. I know. Fuck. Yeah, I fucking. We all did. Cancel us all. I fucking vote every time, if only so I have come up when liberals say, if you don't vote, you have no right to complain about everything. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we can't get owned later. That's why we vote. But like, I really, I don't know. I feel like Sam thought I was being overly pessimistic when I said this, but like, to, to I think it's really irresponsible to tell working class people that voting is the only way to change things like i remember in the midterms uh when i went to my polling place thank you very much and i saw more people there than usual and i asked the guy working if it's like it's if it's a bigger turnout than usual and he said yes and i asked why he thinks that is and he says he's like yo people are pissed off yo and i was like yeah i i see that but it's also like so depressing to me that the outcome of people being pissed off would be to go in and vote for Andrew fucking Cuomo. <laughs> like there has to be more. There has to be more we can do with this. Right. Okay. I really have to pee, but uh, I'll be right back. And this is going really well. 
how long have we been going? I think like uh, about an hour. How long did she say we were going? About an hour, an hour and a half. You got to go, Tanya? You got things to do? I have someone coming over for dinner at 7, but we've got a little time before that. Tom, did your lights go out? Yeah, I didn't pay the bill. The sun went down <laughs> on Tom's side of town. Yeah. When the sun goes down on my side of town. Real big groove. What song is that? When the sun goes down on my side of town. I'm it's Neon a... Moon. Uh, yeah. Neon Moon. Neon Moon. Yeah. There's so many good covers of that song, too. <laughs> Is there? Who's, who covered it? Uh, Cigarettes After Sex covered it. Uh, Casey Musgraves covered it. Really? Yeah. Um, there are several punk versions of Neon Moon, too. <laughs> Holy shit. I didn't know Casey yeah. Musgraves did it. Yeah. Well, uh, Brooks and Dunn j- just like recently released a remix or whatever of their greatest hits, and she did the Neon Moon version. So they released a CD of songs of people doing their songs? With them, yeah. But the people... Casey did most of the... Most of the oh. Most of it. Are Brooks and Dunn like Trumpers? Are they... I have no idea. I don't know. Interesting. It's a slippery slope to start um, evaluating your country musicians' politics. <laughs> <laughs> general rule, it's bad news to do that. Yeah, just forget it. Just keep them separate. Separation of uh, state and country. Good point. <laughs> so I'm back. I'm sure that was a fascinating aside that we're probably going to leave in. When I hear it. Um, yeah, I was singing, so definitely leave Excellent, that. excellent. So, okay, I wanted to talk a little bit about connecting up these different struggles that are happening in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. Because um, I remember when you were talking with um, Matt Jones on your show, um, you said that people listen to your show from all over the place and... Probably, hopefully, that's because we're starting to identify many of these struggles as being linked against a common enemy. And I thought about that when I was reading um, Terrence's piece in The Baffler on this kind of woke developmentalism that has failed over and over again in Kentucky. And it really reminded me of a very local struggle that's going on right now where I live in Bushwick. Um, and it's kind of the same story, just like different players. Um, there was recently kind of a fight over the loft law that was basically, it's really, it's really fucking complicated, but, um, the loft law protects tenants of lofts in formerly industrial spaces from being kicked out and from being subjected to unsafe conditions by their dirty, dirty landlords. And there were a lot of Democrats who opposed a strengthening of the loft law on the grounds that um, the, the conversion of these spaces from industrial to residential, even though it's driven by much larger material forces within capitalist development, that this was taking, it, it was speeding up gentrification 
and it was taking jobs away from people, low-income New Yorkers, people of color, uh, members of the community who would otherwise be doing shittier, lower-paying jobs, right? But And I can see it from that side, but also the way it often practically plays out is when the people leave, when the loft tenants are evicted, and like granted, some of them probably are douchebags, but that's not like a politically useful category, um, <laughs> that the things that replace them are not industrial jobs coming back. They're a fucking WeWork or like a fucking Etsy store where like Manic Pixie Dream Girls put birds on things. And <laughs> like I can, and, and, the, and I took a look actually at this development plan for the industrial business zone. And it's vague enough so that it could be light industry of some sort that employs, you know, people without a college degree, but it, it leaves it vague enough. So it could be like a fucking pickle store or whatever, like a kombucha brewery or something that we don't generally associate with jobs for low income people of color or whatever. Um, and like, on the one hand, I would feel like an asshole standing in the way of this development if it were actually happening for real because as long as we have capitalism people need jobs to survive um on the other hand it almost never works out that way especially when you're talking about people in the democratic party who are allied with corporate interests necessarily and i think your article um gave a lot of evidence that it doesn't so I don't know. I think that's, I would like to believe, I would like to believe in this kind of developmentalism, but I think you've all done a really good job using your experience in the nonprofit sector and in like anything that has to deal with fractions of the establishment that it almost never works out in working class people's favor. Yeah, I think that's very accurate. Um, where we live, it's kind of uh and of course, I mean, as you just said, it's going on there. Um, I think it's so fascinating after, I think this is probably the second article like this that I've kind of written about nonprofits and we've had several episodes about them as well. And after every one of them, we get so many people being like, this is exactly what's happening in my small town in Mississippi, or this is exactly what's happening in Cleveland. I mean, it's happening like all over. And so that's been one of the best things about the show. And as you were saying, it's like you're building a sort of like geographical solidarity. You're, you're building pe your solidarity with people who the elite tell you are not your friends. You know what I mean? Or, or who tell you that you have nothing in common with or whatever. And so it's, it's been a, a very uh, cathartic experience um, to know. And I, and I think it's mutual. It's for us. And I think for other people too, it's been cathartic to be like, Oh, like, a lot of people are dealing with this as well. Um, and so, yeah, so, like, I think another dimension of that is, like, people tend to then, and I think this is really hard to convey, I guess, to anybody who doesn't live here where we live, but because the coal industry had such a stranglehold on things for so long, I think people tend to think that those kind of development initiatives are progressive because they aren't overtly pro-coal. And so I think this is probably pretty common in a lot of other places as well. So a big reason, and this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning when you asked us why we do this, is like 
I think our very second episode, like the, the thing that we talked about, it's like this kind of stuff is not politics. It's not liberatory and it's not helping out the working class. Um, and so it's crazy that that needs to be said, but it does need to be said. We really do have to sort of like dissect it and, and try to understand why it needs to be said, especially now. Yeah, it also goes back to stuff about the Just Transition program. And I wanted to kind of talk about the Green New Deal a little bit, although that's like probably opening up a whole other can of worms, like setting up on the one hand, like this thorough indoctrination by local industry, whether it's coal or oil or whatever, that we're providing jobs and these hippie environmentalists who only care about the spotted owl are trying to take jobs away from you and you need these jobs in order to survive. And and that's like, there's some truth to that. Um, but like, what's what's the alternative? Like, is it, it, yeah. And on the other hand, there's like liberals who say, oh, we need a better environment. I'm going to endow this foundation so that we can have like a nice place for me to go on vacation. And it doesn't provide a very convincing alternative. So like, what is the actual leftist alternative? Like, is it a Green New Deal where economic development is sort of paired with uh, transitioning to forms of power that aren't going to like destroy the environment and the world. I mean, I, I attended a talk on capitalism and the extractive industries that was really depressing at the socialism conference in Chicago a couple of years ago, where the guy giving the talk said, you know, certainly the green new deal is better than nothing. It's better than all these like bullshit Paris climate accords that Obama came up with. It's better than the Republican death cult trying to, they're just going to destroy the world with fossil fuels but in the long term um the amount of ac- economic activity that would be generated by such a program would basically cancel out any net benefit to the environment and i was like damn so like what what what's the leftist alternative here i have no idea i really don't here's what i'll say the fossil fuel industries aren't organized i think the first step is we have to organize the fossil fuel industries like the workforce by that, I mean the oil, you know, the rig hands, the pipeliners, the coal miners, all these other workers. Like until that happens, I don't really know what else to say about the Green New Deal. It's like otherwise you're just going to have to shove it down their throats. And that might work. It might also be really bad. So I don't know. I, I don't think that um, it's really hard to talk about it like without um, – I mean, some of the trade, you know, some of the trades are unionized, obviously, like automobile manufacturing and stuff like that. But uh, a lot of uh, extractive industries aren't. And not only that, there is a culture, there is a reactionary culture within that workforce in many ways. And so um, to me, it's it's very bleak. I don't know how you do it. I mean, I guess. Well, that's the thing. It's like it's hard to talk about without getting all Mad Max about it, you know. <laughs> Right. I don't want to be <laughs> pigeonholed and look like a nut job when I say whatever <laughs> I would normally say, but you know, I don't know. Let me, I, I'd have to sort of ponder a more palatable, sort of rational answer to that. Well, I, I mean, I heard Naomi Klein on Chapo the other day, and it, and it bummed me out because, like, I like Naomi Klein, but she was kind of just recapitulating the same just transition stuff that I've heard for years around here. Um, and, and I think that, like, 
another thing that we've tried to do in our show is try to try to explore why just transition has failed because it's been tried. I mean, it hasn't been tried by a government, but it has, it was tried by like the nonprofits in this really half-assed way here. I guess it was kind of tried by the Obama administration, but it was also very half-assed. Teach the but, I mean, miners to code. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Promise zone. Promise zone. Um. Yes. We had promise zones and really dystopic stuff like that. Mm. And so, like, a, a big thing of what we've been trying to do is, like, explore, like, what went wrong and, like, how uh, things played out, how the politics of this played out on the ground. And um, I don't know. Uh, maybe one of these days, one of the three of us, one of the more enterprising three of us will write a book about it or something to try to understand it. <laughs> but it was bleak. It was bad. I mean, you had this reactionary movie, movement called the Friends of Coal Movement. Um and it was, uh, I mean, the whole the whole point was to bind together coal workers and their bosses against the environmentalists and against carbon free um, energy production. And so, uh, and the politics of that, like, really, in many ways, pre envision the Trump movement. Um, and so. I don't know. It's it's you got to really explore that stuff. And and anyways, all that to say is I was really bummed to hear like Naomi Klein kind of not really just kind of just saying like, uh, you know, we need a Green New Deal. We need to address transition that honors the workers. I mean, like how many fucking times have I heard that in my life? Like a million times. We need a Green New Deal that or just transition that honors the workers and communities that produce it's like shut the fuck up. Like I heard it so many times and it's just so empty. I don't know. In short, Trillbillies need a book deal. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. They are currently free agents. They are fielding offers. <laughs> Get in That's before right. the rush. Extremely free agents. <laughs> oh, yeah. Talk about a gold rush. We are in under demand. <laughs> well, I, I feel like this, like a lot of things, It all roads lead to we have to get rid of capitalism. Like, it might not solve all yeah. of the problems because we are still going to need to produce a certain amount of things. But I have to believe if things were being produced for their use value and not their exchange value on the market, there would be a lot less waste generated. And, like, it still has to come from somewhere. So even if we're extracting less shit from the ground in the US, um, the cheap crap that people buy on Amazon are still going to have to come from somewhere. Like someone's yeah. going to be left holding the bag. And that is my fear. One of my fears about this sort of horizon level vision of social democracy in one country. Like as long as we're still operating within the logic of global capitalism, um, it's going to be predicated on the exploitation of people elsewhere. And infinite yeah. growth yeah. cannot, like, it can't yeah. continue unless we go to space, I guess. Well, that's another thing. That's another thing that bummed me out. It's just like Naomi Klein said in this interview, like, degrowth isn't a useful, I think her literal quote was degrowth isn't a useful talking point or something like that. And it's just like, I mean, it's a complicated issue, right? I don't want to like get into, like, the growth degrowth thing here. but um, But at the same time, it's like, you, you you can't like we can't just keep growing infinitely like just using up all the world's resources uh but at the same time like we're we do need electricity and unfortunately even under solar energy you have to extract resources for that 
And so, um, I don't know. Yeah, Kyle and I space. It's one of the uh, that y'all inter- y'all's interview with Kim Stanley Robinson was so fucking excellent. And uh, anybody who hasn't read the Mars trilogy should oh, do that you. because um, because it really changed. It it really like it really addresses a lot of these issues. Like, what is science capable of, and like, what are the limits of that? Um, does a better system mean we don't still reproduce the same things? I don't know. It's hard to reckon with the fact that capitalism is so exponentially uh, terrible and harmful, yet most people in power, including the Democratic Party that we're supposed to uh, invest uh, trust in and energy in, are still defending it. Yeah. It's like it's hard to even imagine, envision, and start building a different world when we aren't... (laughs) We've just got maniacs in power defending um, how great this horrible existence is. Well, no, for so many people. Didn't you hear Elizabeth Warren? We're going to make capitalism work for everyone. Yeah, yeah, it's just so fucking delusional. And and every time a group of people I you know really admire endorse her, I just like lose it a little more. It's hard to understand. Yeah. It's another yeah. reason electoralism feels like a big fat failure. Um, well, even like political parties and leaders that are far to the left of Bernie have still been constrained by the power of the global market. Like if you look at what happened to Syriza in Greece, like they were full of actual fucking Marxists. And when push came to shove, the fucking world bank still was able to exert discipline on them and now greece is fucked forever since we started recording this show in in the hour since we started eva morales had to step down yeah yeah i was about to say also in bolivia oh that's a dark note to end on (laughs) well rip out some mercury feelings children (laughs) i implore you well lula is free now so that's something right that's good yeah i i feel like i always do this we come to like a really good stopping point and then i just like push it a little bit further and then it gets depressing again oh that's that's the role on our podcast (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna say yes i'm very familiar with that that's his actual job title you gotta leave on a depressing note always staff downer (laughs) uh yeah people hate it too the audience hates it well let's let's end on a call to arms like, what is there anything okay. that gives you hope that we're going to be able to solve these problems in the short or long term, however long a term we even have at this point? I mean, I, I mean, I think that, uh, like we were saying earlier, teacher strikes. Uh, there's been so many strikes just in the past two years, two or three years, and then, like I was saying before that, you had, uh, you know, you have street insurrections, you have all kinds of resistance that happens in prisons that none of us hear about on a day-to-day basis. The left needs to ask itself how to plug into those things. Yeah, and, and just, yeah, the one thing that we always say on the show, too, that, like, the the easiest way to plug in is to get involved with prison justice stuff and, and, and uh, criminal justice reform, because no matter where you're at, there are people locked up, and mm-hmm. I think that could be sort of an important uh, choke point for some sort of movement going forward, and anybody can get in on that. Yeah, you have to think about small strikes 
um, as precursors to a national strike, if that is something that you are looking forward to. Oh, very much so. Um, and yes, and if we are uh, going to have the political will and power that we need, we have to bust all of these most oppressed peoples by capitalism out of their cages. So two really easy, let's not use the word easy, but two very clear paths to building. Um, and then, you know, one one little thing that I think um, gives me a little bit of hope is that the powerful elite are, you know, they're, they're not just killing us now, they've started to kill each other like Jeffrey Epstein, so. <laughs> Big time. Now, if they just if they just keep taking each other out, eventually there's a good ratio there. Totally. Well, I think that is a very positive note to end on. So thank you. Yeah. And um, thank you. We can do it if pressed. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know if that's like a winning campaign slogan, but uh, <laughs> I'm gonna workshop that a little more. We're gonna focus group yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming, guys. This has been great, and I hope we get to do it again soon. And keep up the good work. Thank you, Jane. Same to you, and thanks for letting us come on. Yeah. 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 Great to meet you. Anytime. Think we're kindred spirits. Well, she spoke he was an honest man. He worked hard to put food on our plates. Well, we had more babies than we had arms. We struggled all our lives, but the rewards were great. And when my son came home from the war, he rested his head on my breast and said, Ma, I'm tired of being used and grinded down. I feel so low. Can you make me feel like I'm the best? Well, my best friend truly went a savage man. He wore her like All the stories that this mother spoke to me As I brought her garden back to grow I was warded with a warm meal Tales never to be heard Some call it poverty But they'll never know She said all I got's my stories And this old guitar My crops have all come and gone away I got a head full of recipes It ties into the taste And I like it to wake up and greet the day Got bad back from raising my children From hugging my husband so tight Hell, I never cared much for any government I got my Jesus when I feel the time is right Singing, I'm the richest I